Hello, and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown for Wednesday, May 19th, 2021, National Devil's Food Cake Day. I am your favorite dessert connoisseur host, Tom Hollingsworth, and joining me is the king of creme brulee, Mr. Stephen Foskett. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. And you know, I do love a good creme brulee, but it's so easy to ruin. You see, no, actually, let's talk about the rundown this time. Yes, instead of running down sugar-filled desserts, we're going to run down some things that are a little less sweet, but possibly more important to the world of enterprise IT. And uh, we're going to start off with um, virtual event week, specifically Pure Accelerate, Stephen. Um, Pure Storage is holding their annual Accelerate conference online this week, as most conferences are being held. Um, but it's a little bit more of a marathon as opposed to a sprint, and that's because Pure Accelerate is taking place over the next five weeks. Um, Stephen, we've been a part of several virtual conferences over the last 12 months because of the pandemic. Um, how is Pure Accelerate going to be different this year? What's being shown? And how do you feel like this approach of spreading the content out over a month as opposed to a week is going to work for them? Well, I understand why they're doing it. So let's start with that. I understand that there's a lot of virtual event fatigue right now. And I understand too that a lot of companies that have a product area or products that focus in different business areas are facing some backlash from users who say, hey, how come I had to sit through the data protection stuff? I'm a cloud person. Or, hey, you know, um, I'm really interested in, in analytics and I don't care about storage arrays or, you know, and, and frankly, I, I get that. And I appreciate the fact that it's segmented a bit. Um, but I don't appreciate that it's five weeks long. I'm sorry, I, my brain just doesn't last. I, I'm having trouble following it, honestly, because it's, um, it's Wednesday and Thursday last week, Tuesday and Thursday, this week, next week, next week, next week, next week. And each week has a different theme, which again, I, I love, but the problem is that it's so spread out that uh, frankly, I forgot about it the other day. And, and that's not good, right? I mean, I want to attend these things and I want to pay attention, but uh, it's, it's just hard to, uh, it's hard to schedule and hard to follow. Um, also, uh, can I get a raise of hands for how many people are tired of virtual events? Now, this isn't Pure's problem. They can't fix the pandemic. They're not Dr. Fauci with the vaccine needle. Um, but, but that being said, boy, I wish going to San Francisco and spending a day or two in a big, giant, cool warehouse and having some food truck food and getting it all done in two days. Um, I'm really looking forward to the, fact, to the time that I can get on a plane again. And, um, you know, everybody's trying different things. Cisco with Cisco Live, uh, you know, we did the Nginx conference, you know, we worked with Red Hat on their conference. Um, and, and everybody's trying to do as good a thing as they can. Frankly, I think the best ones that I've seen are the ones that are just short, 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 and to the point. So for example, Scality launching Arteska, uh, the whole thing was two hours. And, and that's basically what they needed because they said like, here's the thing, pay attention, here's the thing. And then they spread that across all channels and then we're done and we got the message. Uh, I would like to see that with more virtual conferences. And, and so basically I'm finding this one pretty hard, even though I really like Pure and I really care about Pure Accelerate and I'm really trying to pay attention. It's just really hard on my little brain to do that over five weeks. 
So speaking about things that are hard on little brains, Tom, uh, let's talk malware gangs. Uh, did you know that your keyboard can be the only thing standing between you and a ransomware infection? And I don't mean what you're typing on the keyboard. I mean, the literal keyboard itself. So Brian Krebs is reporting on his site that almost all strains of common malware in the wild have a fail-safe mechanism that prevents it from being installed if the computer has a Cyrillic keyboard. Now, theoretically, this is attempt to, for these um, you know, former Soviet countries, uh, uh, malware gangs to try to avoid having any infections in their region because they don't want to uh, you know, get the wrath of the cops or be extradited because they're uh, attacking somebody local. Um, but frankly, uh, it's also a way to prevent uh, malware uh, from getting on your computer. So a bunch of people have been running out and installing a Cyrillic keyboard mapping. You don't actually need the keyboard. You just have to install the mapping on the software uh, in order to uh, try to poison this, uh, this malware before it starts. What do you think about this idea, Tom? I think it's a great stopgap measure, but please don't count on this to save you because there's just as much malware out there that doesn't care what keyboard you're typing in or what you have installed. And I can promise you that as soon as these gangs figure out that people are installing Cyrillic keyboards on their machines to prevent this you know, from happening, they're gonna add additional checks. They're gonna, I don't know, add like time zone checking or something like that. And ultimately here's the reason why. This was a simple way that was almost guaranteed to check to make sure you weren't installing this on Russian, Romanian, Bulgarian computers where these companies tend to operate. Um, and ultimately, I, I love that Krebs brought this up because this is the thing, this is, not, this is not something that's brand new. We've known this for years. It's just that the amount of malware that's being produced now, and all of it seems to have common roots with these companies, these um, shadow organizations, it all just so happens that we accidentally found a great solution that fixes 95% of the problems today. But I promise you that as soon as we find a fix for this, they're going to find a way to fix it back. That's just the nature of the security shell game. Um, speaking of ransomware, Stephen, during uh, Rubrics virtual forward conference this week, uh, the data management company announced that they are going to have a new release that is specifically aimed at helping administrators automatically recover from malware infections. Uh, Polaris AppFlow is designed to help IT teams recover in the event of an infection of not only their primary data sources, but also their backup data, which is a more common threat that is attacking companies. We're not just going to infect what you've been using in production. We're going to infect the things you would use to recover from what we were infected by. Um, the question that I have for you, Stephen, though, is that this is something that a lot of other companies have started coming out with in this space. Um, it seems to be that some venture capitalists told them that the way to make more money is to do malware prevention. And now suddenly, six months later, every company has this installed as a feature. Is this something that is worth it to customers? Or is this one of those box checking things that will get you past a government RFP? Well, it certainly is checking boxes. Let's, let's start with that. Uh, absolutely. Uh, data protection companies have realized that they are a very, very valuable uh, drug to take when you've been infected by malware. And frankly, they are very, very valuable. I mean, if your data is getting in encrypted 
and so you lose access to your data. Well, if you've got a copy of your data, then sure, you can uh, restore it and then you're good to go. Uh, but as you point out, malware is not, authors are not stupid either. And they're, they're in fact, uh, pretty smart. And a lot of malware now is deleting snapshots and clones, uh, deleting and, and locking storage arrays, and uh, going after data protection solutions like Rubrik. Now, uh, the cool thing about this one is that it's pretty automated. Um, that's one thing that I really like about it. It kind of detects when things are being infected which you know, you'd think would be kind of straightforward considering if all the data changed and is unreadable, might be malware, you know? Um, so it, 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 that's, that's pretty neat. And uh, also we're starting to see more and more uh, data protection solutions integrate um, read-only technology, whether it's uh, on storage arrays or object stores or uh, in the cloud as a way to prevent malware from um, closing off access to data protection copies. Now, that being said, of course, the malware authors are doing everything they possibly can to lock it up anyway. Uh, and of course, if you've got uh, data in the cloud, you might have your keys wiped and things like that. So you've got to watch out for this stuff. But I like the direction that this is going from data protection companies. And this rubric solution looks pretty nice. Um, that being said too, watch out because of course, next generation malware also is basically threatening to expose your data unless you pay up as we've been seeing with the uh, recent Apple uh, supply chain attack. So we very much could be in a situation where a data protection solution doesn't actually give you much protection if the primary mechanism of malware becomes exposing data instead of just locking it up. So it's a good move. Uh, I like it. I like the fact that it's automated, but um, it's not a not a cure-all. It doesn't fix everything. Um, good direction. Uh, speaking of malware and ransomware, uh, last week we talked a little bit about Darkseid, uh, not the villain in Zack Snyder's movie, but in fact the uh, ransomware as a service gang that recently affected the Colonial Pipeline. Well, uh, guess what? They packed up and they're getting out of town, just like the sheriff said. Um, the now famous ransomware provider has closed up shop very quickly and moved on to anonymity once again. The servers run by the organization have uh, reportedly been seized and shuttered and the Bitcoin wallets holding their money have allegedly been transferred out of their hands. Uh, the message about their departure confirms that they are tied to the notorious Reville or Reville or uh, evil uh, ransomware gang. Uh, given the hasty apology after the colonial pipeline debacle, is this an attempt to evade Thor's hammer of justice? I think it's funny that you mentioned that they're nothing like the DC comic supervillain who lives on Apocalypse, when in fact, much like what happens when you piss off Superman, he took the exact same exit, stage left, which is disappear into a boom tube and hope that they don't come looking for you because this is exactly what I knew it was going to happen. As soon as Darkseid came out with a really big press release saying we had no intentions of infecting any pipelines, this was somebody who used our software and definitely not us, and please, 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 oh, Cyber Command, do not destroy us. This is their attempt to get out of the spotlight as soon as possible. At any Wild West thing where you see people throwing stuff in the back of a wagon and riding out of town on a horse as fast as possible, that's exactly what this was. 
and it's not going to save them. Now, if you listen to uh, any of the security podcasts, whether it's Risky Business or Smash Security or anything like that, this is standard operating procedure for ransomware games. You hit it big, you take credit, and then everybody kind of walks away like the end of Ocean's Eleven. Why? Because if you spread out, it's a whole lot easier to not get caught. And they're all going to go back and reform gangs. And they're going to take their Bitcoin wallets. They're going to use that as seed money to start up the next group. And then they're going to get famous and do it all over again. Except this time, they screwed with national infrastructure. And the more details that come out about the Colonial Pipeline thing, the worse this looks for all parties involved. But one thing's for sure. Cyber Command's not going after Colonial. They're not going after the, the auditors who have released all these reports claiming how bad their security was. But boy, a few high-profile arrests would look great on a news blotter. So boys, just a hint, don't piss off Superman. Run away. All right, Stephen, um, let's talk a little bit about cryptocurrency uh, because there is a new cryptocurrency out there. Ch-ch-ch-chia. The crypto coin that grows all over your disks. And no, that was not a mispronunciation. It really was. Um, it does eat your SSD too. Uh, the world's going crazy over Chia. Obviously, it's a new cryptocurrency that uses proof of time and space instead of proof of work. Hard drives and SSDs are disappearing faster than spots under OxyClean. Steven, what's the deal with Chia? And when can I order now and get two for the price of one? Just wait, there's more. Uh, no, so Chia is the creation of uh, Bram Cohen, who's best known as the, the guy behind uh, BitTorrent. And essentially, it's pretty much what you said. It's a new cryptocurrency and it's a crypto platform like Ethereum because it can actually run applications. It has a, a Lisp-based scripting language. It can do smart contracts, all sorts of stuff. And one of the concerns that people have had about Bitcoin is the energy used to do all that mining. And in fact, Ethereum, which also uses a lot of energy to do all of its mining, is switching to what's called proof of stake. Well, maybe eventually. Well, Chia is here now and it's getting a ton of attention and it uses what we said, proof of time and proof of space. And essentially what this does is this, uh, you, you have to compute a thing like a hundred gig file and then you have to leave that file online and that file just waits until it has the right match. And mathematically speaking, eventually, you know, every few minutes there's going to be a match and that person's going to earn some Chia coins. And all of this is in the service of validating a blockchain ledger that can, like I said, be used to do uh, exchange of value or transactions or smart contracts or even programming applications, lightweight applications. Um, it's, it's very cool, but it's also very, very, very intensive. And what we're seeing already, it's kind of astonishing that uh, financial analysts and um, people who watch the numbers at companies like Seagate and Western Digital are seeing demand for hard drives and SSDs go through the roof. In fact, it's already impacting the availability of SSDs and hard drives at retail. And a lot of industry pundits in the storage industry are predicting that this could cause a serious crunch on the availability of storage devices uh, for the enterprise as well. Because of course they all use roughly the same components even if uh, enterprise devices are quite different. Um, so this is essentially another 
uh, nail in the coffin on the industry. Uh, remember, we're already dealing with the lack of semiconductors because of slowdowns in production and fires and famines and droughts and plagues of locusts and everything in, uh, in places like uh, South Korea and Japan and Taiwan. Um, now we're also going to be facing a huge uh, crunch on the storage side as well. And frankly, enterprise users should be a little concerned because it's quite possible that this could affect the enterprise as well as your local Best Buy. So that's the news. I mean, the flip side is that uh, Chia looks pretty cool. And I like the fact that it's not eating up, uh, you know, uh, New Zealand's amount of energy but it is eating up quite a lot of electronics and that does of course also have an environmental cost. So people shouldn't think that just because it's not proof of work that it's green. And it just goes to show you that it takes money to make money and somebody's getting rich off of this and I don't care what your cryptocurrency looks like, it ain't gonna be you. All right, Stephen, we need to take a closer look at a couple of stories that have come up in the last few uh, days. And uh, the first one actually is a story that broke quite literally as we were pushing publish on the rundown last week. Thankfully, even though I was busy with networking field day, you were right on the spot to be able to give us a breaking news update. And that is in fact that um, we have a new CEO at VMware. Um, as mentioned in Steven's special breaking rundown report, um, Raghu Raghuram is in, Sumit Dewan moves up and Sanjay Poonan moves out. What does this mean to the industry as a whole that we have had the one of what I consider to be after a week, one of the least exciting CEO transitions in history, because it basically was what everybody expected. And it was exactly what VMware needed to do. Yeah, really, honestly, the only surprise about this is that it is being met with no concern whatsoever by anyone. Um, it's really kind of remarkable. And, and frankly, that's pretty predictable. And kudos to the VMware board for the way that they did this. Because essentially, uh, for those who don't know these folks, uh, Sanjay and Raghu were you know, two stars within VMware. Of course, Pat was the star because Pat is Pat and he was the CEO and he was the one who was sitting up there next to Michael Dell and talking about the strategy for the company. But uh, behind the scenes, we had Raghu, who is by all means the sort of the brains behind VMware's current strategy, hybrid cloud strategy. Um, and we had, uh, you know, Sanjay, who was seen as something of a young rising star within the company. He came over, I believe, from SAP and, uh, you know, Raghu had taken him under his wing and helped him out and really, um, you know, the two of them were both uh, tapped as potential replacements for Gelsinger. Well, the board went with uh, the, the safe choice, I'd say, uh, the consistent choice, the choice that's going to be as smooth sailing as possible by picking Raghu. And frankly, uh, Sanjay has shown himself to be a wonderfully gracious and professional human being by tweeting out his congratulations. Uh, you know, he invited his old mentor to go uh, out to see a Warriors playoff game on his dime. Um, and uh, the two of them, frankly, seem to be no hard feelings. Now you might say, well, in that case, then why is Sanjay Poonin leaving VMware? Well, he's leaving VMware because this is a go-getter A-list uh, executive who had hoped to get that top position 
Now that he didn't get that top position, he's going to go get the top position somewhere else because that's kind of what they do. And frankly, by showing himself to be such a gracious and considerate uh, and professional, he's probably going to get that position pretty darn quick. I doubt that he's got it lined up yet, but I'm sure that there are a bunch of other companies out there in the enterprise IT space that would love to have someone like Sanjay Poonin running the company. And frankly, VMware with Raghu has a very consistent hand on the tiller. This is as if uh, you know Riker took over after Picard left the enterprise. Okay, we'll take it. You know, it's going to be good. So yeah, the, the news here is that there's no news. VMware got a new CEO, and he's a good one. Yeah, for those of you who have never like survived a CEO transition at a large major tech company, looking at this making zero waves at all is a stark contrast to what happened, say, I don't know, several years ago at Cisco, where you had, at one point, I think I was trying to keep count, there were eight different CTO level people who were all vying for that top position. And then John Chambers reaches down and pulls Chuck Robbins up, who was not even really on anyone's list. And it was the same kind of situation that we have with Ragu. He was the best choice to keep the company running because he was the least aggressive choice in the room. And no sooner did they announce that Chuck was going to be taking over the, the, the role of CEO, then we started to see the list of departures of people that are leaving. And that's just the nature of the beast. You do not stick around when you've been passed over. Not just because you're going to be an A-list go-getter to go out and do the job, but it's kind of expected that you are going to go kind of do your thing somewhere else. Because when you think about it, it's a lot like <clears throat> new Apple hardware. You know, Ragu is what every rumor site said it was going to be. Sanjay was that one feature that we're not sure if it's going to be there, but boy, if it is, man, could you imagine how different and crazy this is going to be? Well... If you got exactly what you were looking for and you kind of look at it and go, okay, I can live with that. We forget about this feature over here. And that's basically what the board said is, Sanjay, you're a great person. You do a great job and we love what, you're, what you've been helping us with, but you're not what we want right now. What we want is something that's, that's stable, especially when you consider that they're going to be spun out later this year. And there's a lot of crazy storms ahead. And Sanjay honestly should take that fire and go give it to somebody else and kick them in the pants to get them back where they need to be. And that's just the nature of the beast. I'm very happy for all the people involved here. I think that this sets the company up for success. And honestly, it sets the people who didn't get the job up for success, either in the short term or the long term. Because as we found out with Intel, sometimes the CEO choice doesn't work out. And sometimes you may have to pick the guy you don't want to get the guy you do and if there's a company out there who picked the guy they didn't want, well, Sanjay Poonin's on the market and you know he can do a good job, it might be time to dust off your Rolodex. Yeah, the only negative I could see coming out of this is, and this is a little insider-y here, but uh, Sanjay was very uh, congratulatory toward Nutanix and Diraj Pandey when he left the company there. <laughs> um, Nutanix and VMware are not friends. Uh, they remain not friends. And if Sanjay ended up at Nutanix, well, then we'd have a rundown story. Uh, but until then, let's just consider this VMware's Tim Cook moment. Uh, they've got their Tim Cook, and he's going to continue to run the ship.
Absolutely. So let's talk about uh, something else that's big here. And, and, and folks may say, why is this on the rundown? But I, th- I, I promise we've got a reason. So a New York Times report this week highlighted some of the potential challenges that Apple is facing in China. Specifically, the company has uh, reportedly turned over the iCloud service to Chinese authorities to allow them to investigate within iCloud. And the report mentions how this goes against the stated privacy mission that comes out of the Cupertino company right and left. Opponents of their far-reaching stance on user privacy are, are, are jumping on this as a cudgel against them. The Chinese government has strict rules regarding the availability of user data, and Apple is complying with those laws as it must in order to be allowed to sell products in the country. Tom, what kind of situation is this for Apple, and what does this say about enterprise data sovereignty? So if you read the New York Times article, there's a lot of facts in there. If you read the daring fireball report that we linked in the show notes, you're going to get John Gruber's analysis of what the Times is reporting. And I loved it because Gruber is, and let's be fair, John Gruber is an Apple fanboy at heart. Yeah, he's tough on them, but he's tough on them because he loves them. And he has what I consider to be a very balanced approach to this because we've got a lot of moving parts here. The facts. One, China is a surveillance state between the Great Firewall that limits what people are allowed to see on the internet and the fact that they can request information on you anytime they want. They can pretty much figure out what's going on in your life. Two, they are very picky about the companies that are allowed to do business inside of China. When you look at the number of companies that have developed technology that were then sold to a wholly owned Chinese company, that then kind of grew out of that, the fact that an American or Western company is allowed to operate inside of China with as much autonomy as they have now is impressive. And three, China is the second largest market for these devices in the world. I believe Gruber quoted it's $50 billion a year that they make in China. So what is Apple to do? Well, Everyone's pointing at the fact that Apple has repeatedly refused to build backdoors into iCloud to allow the U.S. government to access information, um, you know, with warrants and things like that. Okay, cool. I get that. And then they turn right around and go, but they're giving the Chinese access to iCloud servers left and right to be able to pull information in. Okay, I get that too. These two things can both be true and not be on on the sides of the coin. Here's the reason why. One, China has rules that say that companies that operate inside of China must provide this access to the government. Two, China controls the physical data centers where Apple servers are being held. And if China wanted to do it, they would just go in and seize the servers and that would be the end of that. Three, the US government has not passed a law mandating Apple be required to build a backdoor into their software. And four, The U.S. federal government does not have the power to prevent Apple from doing business in the United States of America should they refuse to build a backdoor that has been requested but not mandated by law. So as Gruber brings up, Apple really has two options. Do what they're told or get the hell out of China, which is a lot of a stickier situation when you consider that the iPhones are manufactured there. So as as Gruber points out, this is the middle ground, which is we're going to give you as much as you need, but we're not basically going to hand over the keys to all of iCloud because they're only doing this for the iCloud data in China. Now, 
secondly or or fourthly or whatever we're on now mark zuckerberg needs to shut the hell up because of all the people in the world lecturing tim cook on privacy he is the last person on this planet or quite frankly any other planet that needs to be talking right now because the difference between apple fighting tooth and nail to protect my privacy against an invasive government that i live under and facebook emailing that data to government officials on a lark because you know what we just love you guys is starkly different because i promise you if facebook was operating in china because they're not allowed to they wouldn't be they wouldn't be collaborating the least amount possible they would probably be required to turn that over to the chinese government as a wholly owned subsidiary and the chinese government would just be looking through all of that data on a whim because they felt like it and facebook makes that easy anyway but steven there's a lot of data sovereignty issues here and and i think that that was something that you had picked up on in the story you okay tom yeah okay you doing all right i'm better now I know every, any mention of the Zuckerbot makes you crazy. Um, here, here, um, I'll give you something that's more calming to think about. Larry Ellison. <laughs> no, that's not more calming. That's just comical. All right. So yeah, let me, let me, uh, what you've said is, is, is absolutely interesting. I think that there, this is an example. This is a story that shows just how much nuance there is to this tech news. It is very easy to be an Apple lover and say, oh, Apple's still great. You know, they're doing what they have to do, but they're still great. It's also very easy to be an Apple hater and say, see, I told you they're a bunch of hypocrites, but you know what? You're both wrong. This is a nuanced story and there are nuances here and there are nuances to every story. And one of the nuances that I wanna pick up on is this whole idea of data sovereignty. So a couple of weeks ago, we actually had a Tech Field Day presentation uh, by the CEO of Scality. And he, his presentation was not about the product or even really about the market. I, I urge you to Google Scality Field Day Data Sovereignty, and I bet you'll find that presentation. It's really good. And what he's talking about there is the immutable fact that all data is subject to the rules and regulations and laws of wherever it's stored, whether you like it or not. And for that reason, uh, this has become probably one of the biggest football politics, privacy considerations in the world right now. And it will likely continue to be that. And if you're interested in the nuances of the situation and in not in saying, oh, Apple's bad or oh, Apple's great, consider this. If you store your data in the United States, it is subject to United States laws. And that's based on atoms and, you know, it's, it's literally where the butts are sitting in the seats in terms of your data. And um, for that reason, there are quite a few companies that would prefer that their data not enter United States jurisdiction. And so there are companies that sell products specifically to store data in countries like Germany, or Switzerland. Um, I'm a big Proton Mail and Proton VPN user uh, with that data residing within the boundaries of Switzerland. Uh, there is, of course, companies that operate solely in places like Russia or China or Saudi Arabia. And the reason, of course, is because they are complying with their local laws and that's what their local laws require. And this is something that, you know, instead of this knee jerk, oh, this is bad, or these are hypocrites, let's start thinking about data sovereignty. Let's start thinking about how do we architect and engineer applications that store data appropriately based on the users. So here's the thing about this story. 
even if you're accepting the nuances here, you still could get kind of mad when you learn that some Chinese, ethnic Chinese people have found that their Apple iCloud data, unbeknownst to them, is stored on the China side instead of the not China side, even though they are not Chinese citizens. And this is probably an error, but this is the kind of data sovereignty issue that we have to consider. What happens when a Swiss subsidiary of an American bank stores data in the cloud? Do they store it in Switzerland, in America, in the EU, in China? Um, they need to think about that. And they need to think about architecting their application so that it can do the right thing with that data, where the right thing isn't maybe the, the, the capital R moral right thing, but in fact, the right thing according to local laws and regulations. And if that company has a customer in China, then the Chinese government definitely does have jurisdiction over determinations of where that data can be stored, no matter what you think of the Chinese government. That's just how governments are. They're here to basically step on our necks and that's kind of their thing. So um, maybe move to a country that doesn't have uh, that if you're able. Um, and you've got to think about sort of what the implications are when you're architecting these applications and then cloud service providers and cloud platforms and storage systems and, and everybody have to start thinking about how can they comply with these laws? Because the thing is, it's not just China snooping on their citizens. It's also the DMCA and the you know, GDPR and the CCPA and things like that. Um, you know, you've got to start thinking about where the data resides and how you put the data in the right place. And, and to me, that was the interesting thing about this story. Of course, there's also that other nuance in terms of manufacturing and the fact that, uh, you know, Apple manufacturing in China means that they have very little choice in the matter because otherwise they would have literally no iPhones to sell. Uh, that affects a lot of other areas as well. You know, luckily, the majority of enterprise technology components are actually manufactured outside of China, but the majority of the assembly uh, happens inside of China, and that's a fact, and we need to think about that as well. So if Cisco or Dell or HPE or anybody decided that they wanted to have some sort of feature that the Chinese government didn't approve of, they're going to face the same choice Apple is, even though their semiconductors are manufactured in South Korea and Taiwan and they're hard drives are manufactured in Thailand and they're, you know, et cetera, et cetera. They're gonna face these same challenges. And this all kind of comes back to the idea of this global, uh, you know, supply chain. And we all have to try to figure out, we have to navigate between the global supply chain, issues of data sovereignty, and frankly, politics. And I'm not sure what the answer is, but those are the things that came to my mind when I heard about this story. And you're absolutely right. It is a much more nuanced situation than can be contained in a tweet or a newspaper article or, I don't know, a series of Senate subcommittee hearings. Uh, but one little footnote that I thought was interesting from a privacy perspective is that even though China has the power to compel this information from Apple, uh, they actually receive far fewer requests to provide that information to the Chinese authorities than they do in the U.S. because so many other companies are required to provide such detailed information that Apple is really just a bigger component of the whole machine than they are the last bastion of freedom 
that they are rigorously defending against an invasive government. So that's a little food for thought for those of you out there that are ready to uh, paint this particular scenario in stark contrasting colors. There's a lot of blending going on in the middle. All right, well, that's just about do it for this episode of The Rundown. Thank you very much for tuning in. Um, we have had a busy past few weeks, and there's a lot of content out there that you're definitely going to want to spend some time uh, consuming as we get closer to the Memorial Day holiday here in the U.S. Stephen, what are some things that people should check out on your side that are definitely of good interest? Well, you've probably heard me mention the Utilizing AI podcast before. It's our weekly podcast published every Tuesday. Uh, please do tune in if you're interested in artificial intelligence and machine learning and specifically interested in how it impacts enterprise tech and what's gonna, what to look out for with these new applications. Well, we're doing an AI field day event next week on Thursday and Friday, May 27th and 28th, and I encourage you to tune in for that as well. Uh, we're going to have a bunch of companies that essentially are the foundations for the next generation AI applications. So if you remember when cloud started coming to the enterprise, there was a lot of concern and confusion. What is it? What does it mean? And how would it actually be used? You know, what does it mean when boots hit the ground uh, with cloud? It's the same thing with AI. So join us on Tuesday, or I'm sorry, on Thursday and Friday next week. Uh, we're going to have Scality, who I mentioned earlier with their Arteska platform, which is designed for edge AI applications. We're going to have Liquid, which is the uh, leader in composable infrastructure. Uh, that's at 8 and 10. And then on Friday at 8, we're going to have Brainship, which is a company making a low-power neural engine processor that could go anywhere. Uh, talk about some, uh, well, gray areas there. Let's think about uh, having AI literally in every device. Uh, at 10.30, we've got Memverge, which is the big memory darling that's uh, doing for memory what VMware did for servers. And then at 1.30 p.m. Pacific time, we've got Intel coming in with a couple of presentations and it ain't CPUs. They're talking about software and that's gonna be really interesting, Katana Graph and Analytics Zoo. And if you're thinking, you know, I don't know much about AI or machine learning, well, you know, maybe tune in for this because that's really what the AI Field Day is all about. It's to help people like us get our heads around this situation. And Tom, I know that you've had a lot going on last week. Uh, we mentioned networking field day was uh, was happening. I think those videos are up now, right? Yeah, you're absolutely right. We, uh, we spent the weekend making sure that you had all of the content you could possibly handle. Um, you definitely should be consuming it this week before AI field day. But uh, there were a lot of interesting uh, technologies that were kind of highlighted during networking field day. Um, a couple that kind of come to mind, uh, the integration of the Abstra uh, acquisition at Juniper is paying massive dividends already. Um, their entire team presented during networking field day in the, the Juniper presentation slot. Um, so seeing some of the things that they're building on. Uh, the IP infusion presentation, if you are curious about how 5G works, maybe not from a radio spectrum perspective, but maybe just behind the scenes about how you could build a, a network to handle 5G networking, because I'm sure you've seen 5G on all of the networking hardware that's trying to be sold to you. Watch the IP infusion presentation. Um, I'm actually going to have to go back and take more notes on it because it was that in depth. Um, and then one of the, the things that was really super exciting, of course, came from our friends at Intel. They talked about silicon photonics. Um, that's a subject that I actually covered last week in conversations. Um, and they did a great job of kind of explaining what they're doing behind silicon photonics and how they're building out uh, these new um, processing capabilities. And quite honestly, this is like massively cool sci-fi type stuff, you know, kind of like being able to 
get on the internet without any wires or being able to order a car, pick you up somewhere without having to call a taxi service, you know, that kind of sci-fi stuff that we, we do every day now. So if you want to check that out, please make sure you look at the videos from Networking Field Day by going to techfieldday.com. And then uh, you can also head over to gestaltit.com and check out our uh, conversations uh, utilizing AI, check some videos, all of that great content. Um, and we're going to be bringing more and more of it to you over the course of the next few weeks. I mean, just check out the calendar, uh, go to itecal.net to see some of the IT events that are going on, including all of the Tech Field Day uh, presentations that we've got coming up. Um, but for now, for myself, Tom Hollingsworth, for Stephen Foskett, and for the rest of the Gestalt IT family, thank you very much for tuning in for the rundown. We will see you next week, Wednesday, 1230 Eastern Time, with another great episode. And have an amazing day.